<laughs> well, uh, you can be seated, but stay on the edge of your seats. Get yourselves ready. If you want to take notes, get your note-taking ready. If you uh, want to just absorb it all in, then fix your eyes open, prepare your heart. We're going to come and hear from Pastor Chris this morning. Why don't you welcome him as he comes to preach? Oh, suspense. Ooh. Thought it was going to be one of those preaching in the dark sessions. Awesome, you guys can take your seats. Thank you. Now I'm going to start my message this morning with three disclaimers. Now I know you shouldn't necessarily start with things like that, but the first one uh, is that I've already preached this message in the chapel service. Um, So if you uh, are going to both, um, you may remember this one. I have been very clever actually. I preached this for three weeks ago, uh, possibly four. Um, so even if you did go to the chapel service, my, my, my money is on the fact that you've forgotten already. Um, the second thing is that this is a continuation of a series I started uh, eight weeks ago before we went on long service leave. Um, and so I'm actually continuing that. So I'm going to start off with a recap because, uh, again, my money is on the fact that you've forgotten uh, what I preached Uh, before I went on long service leave. And the third and most important disclaimer is that this is part of a series called Exploring My Strange Bible. And uh, this is actually based on on, uh, a podcast by an infinitely uh, more knowledgeable and greater preacher than I am, uh, who goes into it in a lot more depth, a guy called Tim Mackey. And if you are really, really keen, I cannot recommend highly enough that you actually listen to his podcast. It's called, funnily enough, Exploring My Strange Bible. And uh, if you want to go more in depth, or if, if, even if you just want to check the veracity, not the ferocity, the veracity of some of the things that I'm talking about, because some of these things were, were new to me, because we're on this journey of discovering who God is uh, and what it actually means to know God and, and what it means to be a child of God and, and God's plans for humanity based on who he is. Because I don't know whether you recognize this, but who we are is actually totally dependent on who God is. Because I'll let you into a secret, God created us in his image. And therefore it's important that we know whose image we're created in. And so just to, just to refresh your memories, we discovered that uh, there's some great Hebrew uh, names for God. The first one we learned was Elohim. I don't know whether I've pronounced that exactly correctly, but I just, it probably doesn't have the... It just sounds Elohim. Um, uh, vaguely Italian more than Hebrew. Um, but in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, he actually makes the statement, and the, the, the words in brackets uh, are actually the Hebrew of, of what it says in the English. It says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he, the Hebrew word Elohim is used for every single one of those instances. And we discovered that Elohim describes a particular heavenly being. It is not the name of God. It is a description of the fact that our God is an Elohim a heavenly being, but it doesn't actually pinpoint who exactly God is. And so we had to wait until Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 6, where God actually tells us his name. He says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, 
your God, or Elohim, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. And so we discover that he's not the only Elohim, but he is the one and only Yahweh. And he is our God, he is the rescuer of his people, and that is his name. And so once we know his name, so who knows it's good to know people's names? If you're going to get to know somebody, their name is often the first thing you ask. Uh, unfortunately, if you're like me, it's often the first thing you forget, and you have to ask them again, um, which I know is rude, and I apologise if I've forgotten your name. Usually it happens to the people uh, closest to me, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Why, why do you think husbands call their wife darling and dear and, and snookums? Because they've forgotten their names. <laughs> uh, this is confession time here. So once we knew God's name Yahweh, as Yahweh, we discover his characteristics. Uh, funnily enough, Brendan mentioned the fact that one of Jesus' names was, um, I've forgotten it, <laughs> Emmanuel, which is God with us. <laughs> Um, and so Exodus 3.12 is the first time God actually says, he says to Moses, I will be with you. And this is the, your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship in this very mountain. And that, that, whole, that whole passage of scripture is basically God saying to Moses, who's a bit worried about the fact that God has sent him a stutterer. Um, to free the Israelites from the Egyptians. And he says, who am I that you should send me? And God says, well, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is that I'm with you. So you can take, you can take confidence in the fact that it doesn't matter who you are. Just take God with you and you can do whatever he wants to accomplish through you. And so that's one of his characteristics that he's always with us and has always been with us. Um, and in the story of the golden calf, if, I won't go through that again, but basically the, the Israelites got naughty. Um, but uh, Exodus 34, 6 tells us that the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. So we know that they're two of God's characteristics. He is slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. He lavishes unfaithful love to a thousand generations. He forgives iniquity, which is just a fancy word for wickedness. Uh, rebellion and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. So we, we, we see that God's characteristics are compassion, mercy, love, faithfulness, forgiveness and judgment. And we discussed uh, in that last one how judgment is not at odds with the first five characteristics that I mentioned, but it complements them perfectly. So we all caught up. We all, is that sort of twigged anyone's memory? You sort of vaguely remember. If you weren't there, I'm sorry that you can go back and listen to uh, earlier versions of, of the message on our podcast, or if you're really keen, go and listen to Dr. Tim. So we've, we've, got, uh, we've got the story so far, and guess, guess what comes next? Jesus! Exciting times. So uh, the biggest shift in our understanding of God comes in the New Testament where we discover Jesus. And Jesus is, is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. And uh, he, in fact, he's the central character in all four of the Gospels, which are extremely well-crafted books on Jesus' life. And, and they start really well. Um, we'll actually start with the first one, Matthew chapter 1, the first page of the New Testament. And Matthew begins his story with a thrilling roller coaster ride of names. 
I mean, this is, I mean, if you picked up a book, this is how you'd want it to start. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Or Salomon, I don't know, who was the father of Boaz, whose mother was uh, Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Now we'll stop there because A, it goes on for a lot more verses. And B, of course, Jesse was actually an important character that hopefully you recognise because he was the father of King David. And so you've got to admit, if, if this was a modern uh, autobiography or novel or whatever you were reading, you, you'd... By the end of page one, you'd think, um, anything else? <laughs> Any other good books out there that I could read? Uh, it's not something that tweaks the modern interest to have a list of genealogy uh, names at the beginning of something. But we have to remember, this is actually an ancient biography. In fact, it's over 2,000 years old. Um, and the people who wrote in these settings and times looked at things in a very different way from us. Um, because what Matthew is trying to do here, he's trying to introduce the story of Jesus, Nazareth, of, uh, Jesus of Nazareth to us. And he, he does it by introducing his family. And I, I touched on this a bit in my intro last week. In that when we have friends, and, and, and my thought is especially, you meet them at school. And school is a very closed environment. And you, you meet this friend that you're in the schoolyard and, and the first person who doesn't, um, spit in your face, splash you with water, smack you around, bully you or whatever, becomes your friend. Um, my school experience might have been unique. but um, And uh, over time, you get to, to know these. They're, they're the faces you look for when you enter the schoolyard, you know, either for, for just comfort, for safety, uh, for conversation, whatever it is. And, and you discover a relationship developing with these people. And then you meet their parents or their brothers and sisters. You perhaps go home to their place after school. You're allowed uh, to sort of go and visit. Uh, and suddenly you discover that things click. You think, well, now I know why he's always complaining about girls. His, his sister is really mean. Um, now I know why, why he brings uh, rhubarb sandwiches to school because that's, that's all they eat. <laughs> what would you like for a snack? We've got rhubarb crisps here. Um, I did know a boy who ate rhubarb uh, not rhubarb, sorry, beetroot. It's, I don't know why I thought rhubarb. We used to grow rhubarb in the back of our place too. It was the only plant I was allowed to pee on as a kid. Um, it, it, it helps them grow or something. Uh, uh, anyway, that, that was free. That's not part of my message. Uh, but anyway, you, you discover things about the friend that you've got by, by meeting their family. And, uh, you know, we don't need to meet Jesus' family to know Jesus. I mean, we, we can read the New Testament and we'd still think, wow, this guy is awesome. He's compelling. He's incredible. His love and his heart for people is amazing. The, the belief in, the, in his claim that he is the Son of God is, is amazing. The, the, what he does, his death, the sins of the world on his shoulders, all that sort of stuff is absolutely incredible. The resurrection was done on my behalf and that, that, that is fabulous. We learn all of this from the New Testament. But Matthew wants us to make another connection, a deeper connection with Jesus by knowing his family story because 
with Jesus, it's, it's exactly the same as your friends. When, when we read the backstory of the New Testament, suddenly you say things like, oh, that's why he talks about the kingdom of God. That's why he always uses these phrases and poetic images, because they're all from the Old Testament. That's why he's like he is. That's why he moves towards the certain types of people in his travels because of his family history and who he is. So it's, it's like knowing his family story so that Jesus actually becomes more vibrant and more exciting than he already is in the New Testament stories. And so this is what Matthew's trying to do with that boring list of names at the beginning. And so as we explore the character and the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, I thought we should perhaps start by studying Jesus' family. And so after escaping the Old Testament, let's dive right back into it. Because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to retell Jesus' family history as, an, as a bit of an overview. And then we're just going to zoom in on some key moments to find out what's happening. And so we're going to start at the very beginning. Because I don't know whether you've thought about this, but if you're an Israelite, the beginning of this story happens quite differently to the one your neighbours tell. Because your neighbours were Canaanites and Egyptians and Babylonians. And if you've ever looked at the Babylonian uh, origin stories, um, humans uh, are actually quite differently apportioned importance in their stories as opposed to ours. Um, the Israelites tell a story about gods who are competitive and as they battle, their spilled blood and severed limbs form land masses and, and the blood and the dust of one particular god actually forms humanity. And the only reason that the Babylonian gods created humanity was because they were too lazy to do any work and they thought humans would make good slaves. And so they fought about this and one god got stabbed and his blood fell in the dirt and so they, they moulded humans out of blood and dirt and made them slaves. And you can imagine as a Babylonian, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty horrible origin story. You know, here, what are we here for? We're slaves of the gods. Oh, yes, let's get excited. Uh, not. And yet they, and then they come across these, these Israelites who say, oh, well, okay, well, our God was a bit more creative than that. He, he created everything, every good thing on this earth out of the darkness and, and the, the watery chaos and the, and the wasteland. And he created the garden. And then he created us to live in the garden. <laughs> well, what? He gave you a garden? The Babylonians are aghast at this. It's like, you favoured people, you. Um, and then not only does he give us a garden, he appoints humanity as guardians over his creation. He says, this is the, I have created so much good stuff. I need, I need lots of little mini-me's to look after this place. Because it is, I mean... God's idea of creation is so packed with potential. He says, if I don't have somebody to look after this, this could explode in your face. I mean, there is so much power here. He says, now I'm, I'm going to create these human beings and they are going to be my representatives off this earth and they're going to rule and reign and do a really good job. And we did for five minutes. Um, and so, you know, the Babylonians and the Canaanites are in awe of this. He put you in charge. Good grief, I could follow a God like that. And that. But then you stuffed up, didn't he? You're in for it now. Oh, yes, I know what gods are like. You're going to get crushed like ants. But that's not how the story goes. Um, what happens is that you know, we're, we're created. I mean, our God creates us out of the dirt as well. 
But don't forget, our dirt's different from their dirt. Uh, God created our, the dirt. He created the earth. To actually be made over God's creation is, is an honour. And he breathed his divine breath on that dirt. And that's where we come from. And so there's, there's, a, there's a glory and an honour to our existence, which doesn't happen in other creation stories. And so we've, we've got this thing in Genesis 1.27, it says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so the upshot of that is God, God wants to bless humanity. He blesses all of them, and it's all about generous giving and planned abundance and flourishing. And so that's what, that's what he calls us to do. We're to go out and, and, and sort of look after God's creation. And as we're doing that and doing reasonably well at it, a mysterious figure appears, chapter 3. He's called the serpent. And he, he, he speaks to Adam and Eve and, try, and convinces them that the right thing to do is exactly what Yahweh told them not to do. Now, I don't care when you read this. We, we might read it and think, talking snake. Phew, okay. Weird. But I suppose 2,000 years ago, they were probably fairly plentiful. So they probably didn't think it was weird. Let me get, let's get this straight. No matter when you read it, no matter what time period, it is, talking snakes are strange. <laughs> they, they indicate something is not right. And so, you know, even for the, the Israelites, this story about this, this talking snake was alarming. They didn't take it as, oh, yeah, one of those talking snakes. It's, you know, this, this, is, this is wrong. And so, this, this serpent persuades the humans to do exactly the opposite of what Yahweh is telling them to do. Uh, and it, which is to seize, of course, the knowledge of good and evil and to find good and evil for ourselves. And make ourselves like God, which is already how God had made us. <sighs> okay. If I was there. <laughs> so guess what? God is hurt. And he's justifiably angry. Although he doesn't actually get angry in the story, which is interesting. What he does is he shows up and invites the humans to be truthful about what they've done, which they're not. Uh, and so what he ends up doing is basically just informing them of the tragic consequences of their decision. Now, that's, this is key here, because Yahweh's purpose is to bless. He never curses the humans. He just informs them about the tragedy of what's about to happen. But what he does do is bring a curse on the serpent. And he does it with a rather neat little poem. So I don't know whether you know this. If you want to know about Jesus' family history, you've got to learn something about poetry because a lot of it is poetry. You often read it in your Bibles and it's like it's on those really thin pages or it's on your really thin iPhone or Google device. Um, and they're just lines. And so it looks as though it's a story. But this is actually poetry. Uh, Genesis 3.14, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so this serpent, whatever this being is, is presented to us as the origin of evil, which is suspicion of and rebellion and rejection of Yahweh and leading others down the same path. And so he's actually predicting the future destiny of the serpent here. Um, and so we, we gather that the serpent also recognises poetry because um, it's not talking about how snakes used to have four legs and God chopped them off so they had to crawl in the dirt. Um, it's, it's actually, it's poem. It's, it's poetry. There's, there's a symbolism involved here. So you know, in, a, in a room this size, there's probably somewhere between zero and two people who actually have any active interest in poetry. Um, I, I could ask for a show of hands, but it might be depressing. Um, but we, we need to actually understand that poetry is, is a different way of expressing things. I mean, uh, my love of poetry basically came, came down, limericks are about as high as I go in the poetry hierarchy. Um, and my favourite poem is, poet is a guy called Ogden Nash, who, uh, who wrote nonsense poetry. <laughs> Funny how that would appeal to me. I mean, his most famous poem is the, is the one about, you know, today as, as I was going up the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish the hell he'd go away. Great poetry, isn't it? Okay, so he's not for everybody's cup of tea. Um, he, he also did very short poems. The trouble with a kitten is that eventually it becomes a cat. Okay, you can learn more about poetry from other people. Um, so, what's the, what's the future destiny of evil in Yahweh's great creation here? Um, basically, defeat and removal. Evil will not always have ultimate sway, and it will not get the last word in God's good world. So, how is Yahweh going to defeat evil at its source? Well, let's look back at verse 15. It says, I will put enmity... Now, some of you are a bit confused. You've watched the Amityville Horror. Uh, it's the Amityville Horror. It's not the same thing. Um, actually, that's probably a bit old for most people. It's a horror. No, forget it. Okay. Uh, keep moving. Um, enmity is basically aggression. Hatred is a good word for it. So I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so it's almost as though there's a crossroads here. We've got two lines going out from this story. Um, it's not about baby snakes at all, by the way, or baby sharks. Um, <laughs> humanity is at this crossroads where we can choose. Every generation can choose to replay the garden scene where we a given life but we fall into temptation or we can choose a line where ultimately we are part of removing evil from this world and this is going to happen through the line of this woman there's going to be an offspring from her line and and if you look at you look at the last line of the, of the poem here it's really bizarre it says he will crush your head who's he how do you know it's Jesus you've been reading ahead See, they don't actually know that. They just know that somewhere along the line there's going to be this person who comes along. Now, we, we know it's Jesus. It's actually important that we know it's Jesus. Because I don't know whether you've, you've been to sort of any of the major cities of the world, but 
you're almost guaranteed in at least one of them to find somebody sitting there with a sign around his neck saying, I am the Messiah, repent and come with me, the end is nigh. If you've seen it on movies, if you haven't seen it in real life anyway. And you sort of think, well, what's to stop people doing that? We know Jesus is coming back. Why is some mad-looking guy in the subway in New York with a sign around his neck not the Messiah? And the reason is this, because Jesus' appearance was actually predicted. He's not some random dude who turned up. It's part of, he's part of God's plan. And so this, this is actually talking about what's going to happen to Jesus. This is all about the future defeat of evil. Evil is going to have influence throughout the world. People are going to succumb to the lure of the serpent, but God's going to preserve this line, and there's going to be this he that comes, and he's going to crush evil at its source. Now, I know this is poetry, and we, we have to be careful of the ambiguity in poetry but the image that it shows is the fact that evil is going to be crushed by this victorious person but as evil is crushed the snake is going to bite the heel of that person and we're talking venomous snakes here as I said last week even though he was from the garden he's not a garden snake evil is a venomous creature and so you've got this idea of a fatally wounded victor his defeat of evil will be achieved by he himself succumbing to the wound that evil inflicts on the victor at the same time. Now, we've all read ahead. But isn't that, you know, this is Adam and Eve being given the perfect picture of what Christ did on the cross. He sacrificed his life to defeat evil so that we could live. And so it's, it's obviously that reference to the cross but the thing is that if you're reading the story a thousand years before Jesus, you don't know that. All you know is that someone is coming, which compels you to keep going in the story. It's called, I think Brendan would call it plot tension. It's driving the story forward. And so next week, we're actually going to continue reading as part of this story. But I want us to, to think right now that, I mean, this is the first page first couple of pages in the Bible, we're talking about and yet already God has put a plan in, in motion to send a saviour, a redeeming son, to actually take away our sins and to restore us into a garden-like relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this is why we're here. We, we tell this story about Jesus because we're here in church today to celebrate the fact that Jesus died for us. We're here, in fact, because we've committed our lives to him because of that fact. And you may be sitting here listening to these words, and you might, you might think, wow, the sacrifice that Jesus made is, was absolutely incredible. But you may be here thinking, well, I, I've done nothing to deserve that. In fact, hopefully all of you are sitting here thinking, I've done nothing to deserve that because we haven't. But the, th the only thing that God ever asks of us is that we actually make a decision to say, look, I acknowledge this sacrifice and I am going to take a, a stand in my life to acknowledge Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour. I don't know whether you've done that this morning, but I, I want to give 
every possible chance for people to do that. So can I ask, ask people just to stand? Could I get Jord to come forward? And I want us to pray a prayer together. I'm going to ask everybody to pray this prayer. But if you're here and you've never actually prayed a prayer asking Jesus to come into your life, or you've done it in the past, but you know that your life after that prayer has not equaled the promise that you made in that prayer to follow Jesus, I want to invite you to say say it with a fresh heart this morning. And so I know who I'm praying for at the moment. Can I just ask everybody to close their eyes for a moment? And if that's you this morning, you've never prayed that prayer, but you've pray- or you've prayed it before, but you know you're not living it, and you want to make that decision this morning, can I ask you just, while well, no one's looking around, to raise your hand so that I know who I'm praying for? And uh, I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards if that is you. Is there anyone at all who wants to make that decision this morning? Okay, let's all pray together as a reminder of who we serve and what he's done. Dear Lord Jesus, from this moment on, I consider myself a child of God, saved by grace, your sacrifice on the cross. I turn away from my old life. I take on a new life with you as my Lord and Saviour. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Amen. Now, can I, I actually want to ask you just, just to keep standing for, for a while longer. Can I get uh, Mason and Carmen to come here for me, please? I want us to pray for these guys. Um, you can reach out your hands. Um, I believe God, God has a word for you. There's one word. It's a four-letter word. So if you don't like four-letter words, block your ears now. <laughs> the word is wait. W-A-I-T, not W-E-I-G-H-T. You said it's a <laughs> yes, it's not a diet. But I, I believe, I, I was praying this week, and I wasn't praying for you guys, but I just felt that God popped this in. Because... I was just praying for everybody else. You guys are right out of it. Um, But God has a purpose and a plan for you. And you recognize this purpose and plan. And I really felt that God God was revealing that you guys are fighting. That you, you you have got faith between your teeth and you have prayed and you have stood and you, you have sort of buckled on the armor of God and you are standing there with sword in hand ready to do battle and God says, wait. In fact, he says, lay it down. He says, the victory isn't yours, the victory is mine. You don't have to do the fighting, just wait. He says, I have won the battle but you have to wait until you see the victory. And he says, you don't want to wait. I know why you don't want to wait. It's easier to fight. When you wait, things come into your head. Things come into your heart. Waiting is, is, is where the, the devil attacks you. You know, that scripture says he roams around like a roaring lion seeking you because he wants to attack. 
and you want to attack back but God says wait the victory is mine I have won he's he's roaming around trying to distract you do not get distracted wait and waiting just involves praying but in faith don't ask him for stuff you've asked him if you haven't asked him get down and do it right now but I believe you've asked him for stuff don't ask anymore just pray, pray thanks thank you God that the victory is there you feel uncertain in that and I've got this picture of you standing on, on a block so God has elevated you and at this moment you feel that God's actually given you another block elevated you another stick but it's wobbly you're thinking why have you put me in this place God I don't feel safe in this place God I could fall it's you know my foothold is rocking and God says wait it's only rocking because you're moving he said keep still wait because he has elevated you to a position he has given you responsibility not so that you'll fall but so that you'll rest he's given you authority he's given you courage he's given you the plans and purposes that you've always believed in but he says wait the victory is mine says the Lord do not fight for your own victory you can win but the victory won't be anything like the victory you'll see when God reveals what he's doing to you and for you and through you so Lord I just pray right now I thank you that your word fills this couple with hope I thank you that as Mathan and Carmen stand together there is no weapon formed that can affect their minds, their hearts, their spirits, or their physical beings. That as they wonder, you know, and, and they do, Lord, why, why have you brought me to this place? It's a bit like Jesus' family tree. Your, your past, your family, what, what you've done, everything has brought you to this place. And God says, do not wonder why you are here. Do not believe the circumstances are not of my making. He says, you are exactly where I want you just wait the Lord will strengthen you he will raise you up on wings of eagles Holy Spirit fill them fill them right now Jesus mighty name Amen